Well, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. I caught you off guard a little bit, but that's a good thing. Y'all are wandering around talking to people. That's a great thing. Hey, if you are a guest this morning, I just want to uh, give a very special welcome to you. So thankful that you've chosen to join us. If we haven't met, my name is Paul Pretty. I'm the teaching pastor here at Life Point Church. Again, very grateful uh, that you're here with us this morning. Members, regular attenders, welcome back. So good to sing to Jesus alongside of you. So thankful uh, for that. Well, this morning, church, uh, we are continuing on in a series we've been in for quite some time, uh, walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, the series title, as you can see here on the screens, uh, the series title being Under the Sun, and that is uh, directly um, inspired by the phrase that we see repeated throughout Ecclesiastes many, many times, under the sun. Okay, And, and what we're seeing, just for way of review, uh, is the author um, who is giving to us the teaching of somebody called the preacher. And we understand the preacher to be King Solomon, the wisest king uh, to ever live, the wisest man to ever live, king of Israel after David, David's son. And what he's saying it, over and over again, he started out back in chapter 1, and I know this is review, but I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, he asked this question, what does man gain by all of the toil with which he toils under the sun. And in verse 2, he of course gave us the answer to that, that he has been expounding on now for 10 some chapters, where he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. So what does a man gain? Vanity. And that meaning of vanity is really meaninglessness, empty. I've said this before, it's like if you were to go outside on a cold winter's day, very much unlike today, and you were to breathe, you would see your breath in front of you. And if you would try and lay hold of that, because it looks like you might be able to, you would grasp nothing but air. And that's essentially over and over and over what he's saying. If you live this life for what you can gain under the sun, not over the sun, you will end up with vanity, meaningless. And if you leave it there, of course, that's incredibly depressing. But praise God, we don't leave it there. What we've seen each and every week, the big idea of this entire series, is that God offers us or God gives us a full life in an empty world. And so each week of this series, that's what we're doing. is We're seeing what is the preacher saying. The word of God is true. The word of God is profitable for us in, in all sorts of different ways. And so we need to understand what the word of God is saying, see how we can be transformed by it, and really live our lives more faithfully and with more meaning through faith, ultimately, in Christ. And so that's the, the groundwork for what we're doing today. Today we're going to be in chapters 8 and chapter 9. Uh, before we get into the text, I do want to ask the Lord for help. And so let's do that uh, through prayer. All right, Father, grateful for our time together this morning. Grateful uh, to be able to be led uh, to worship you through singing something about how our hearts are wired, uh, to sing truths about you, God. As we open your word and as we continue in just another form of worship, uh, Father, as we always plead, would you open it to us? Would you help us understand? Would you help us be transformed? Uh, would you help us um, really see what you're saying so that we can see you clearly and we can live lives that honor and glorify you? Shape us, change us by the power of your word, the working of your spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we're going to pick up in verse 14 because he's really sort of exploring a new idea here. He says this, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, 
that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, I said that this also is vanity. Now, do you ever read the Bible and you just ask, why couldn't you say it more, more plainly? Um, if you don't, I do. Um, it, what is he saying here? Right? So essentially he's saying there, there's wicked people and there's righteous people. And what he wants to happen is for the righteous people to, to live long, uneventfully, uh, non-tragic lives. And what he wants then is for the wicked people who live, they should experience tragic events and their life should be shorter. But what he's saying here, and, and maybe that makes him a terrible person, but I think sometimes we think in those ways, right? We say, well, I did the right things. I lived the right way. All of a sudden, we see somebody living the right way, doing the right things, and their life is cut short. And what do we say? That's not fair. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's essentially what he's asking here in verse 14. The righteous getting what the wicked deserve, and the wicked getting what the right, righteous deserve. Now, moving on from there, he tries to understand this. Verses 16 and 17. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. And he's really referring to himself there. He's saying, I thought about this over and over and over again, trying to understand why is it that this is the way the world works and it's robbing him of his sleep. Verse 17, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he can't find it out. So essentially what he's saying here is, I have searched, I have searched, I have searched. I cannot understand why the world works this way. And we have a partial answer to why he can't figure it out, because he has an under-the-sun view. If he had an over-the-sun view, if he would acknowledge who God is, what he would see is that the ultimate answer for this is that sin has broken the world. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are lives cut short when they shouldn't be? Why do tragedies happen? Why is there such a thing as childhood cancer? Why do all of those things exist? And the answer is sin is deadly, and sin has wrecked the world as it should be. But again, he has an under-the-sun view, though it does seem as though he peeks his head over the sun from time to time. Now, with that being said, we now come to chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 for us. He says this, now that he's come to this, I can't figure it out, essentially, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. I'm going to pause there. Uh, on um, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, I was reading these verses, and I was convinced what he was saying, man doesn't know whether love or hate awaits him in the context of talking about death. What I thought initially he was saying is that when we die, we don't know whether love or hate awaits us in eternity. But I actually don't think he's saying that because a principle we've practiced throughout this series is that you can interpret the difficult parts of the Bible with the easy parts of the Bible, easy in quotes there. What we see throughout the rest of the Bible is there is a certainty of what awaits us after death if you look at it through a New Testament context. If you are saved through faith in Christ, you, you should have assurance and confidence in your salvation. You should not be coming to the end of your life wondering what awaits me, hate or love, okay? We should have this confidence of if I have 
placed my faith in Jesus and let him take the punishment for my sins, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. And what I would, I would challenge you with, if you are at a place where you're like, if I die today, I'm not sure where I would go, this is your come to Jesus moment. Because confidence is available to you. However, I don't think that's actually what he's talking about when he says whether love or hate awaits us. I think what he's actually talking about is back to what he was talking about in chapter 8. Right? That the wicked get what the righteous deserve and the righteous get what the wicked deserve. Essentially, he's saying, you might walk out the door and somebody who hates you might kill you. You might walk out the door and everything's great. You don't know what awaits you tomorrow, either life or death. That's essentially what he's saying here in verse 1. Now, verse 2. It says, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Okay, <laughs> so once again we sort of ask this question, could you just say it more simply please, Solomon? Um, fair question. Um, basically, no. But essentially what he's getting at here is that everybody's going to die. Right? That's essentially the point he's getting to. And I had a really, really depressing point a few weeks ago, and I think I may have topped that point in level of depression. No matter what life you live, good or bad, you're eventually going to die. That's essentially what he is saying here in these verses. No matter what life you live, good or bad, eventually this life is going to come to an end. And he's really pressing that into us. Now, what do we then do with that? Well, we get to verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For, the living, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, again, what does that mean? Well, essentially what he's saying is, look, if you're alive, even if you're a dog, and, and in this time, currently we love dogs sometimes more than our kids in our current culture, okay? Um, but in this culture, dogs, they were like the lowest of low animal. They were a, a really disgusted animal, according to, to people at this time. And so he's saying, if you're a dog, you're a low life. According to the standards of the world, it's actually, you have better chance than a dead lion. A dead lion is dead. He can't do anything. He can't eat any more food. He can't rule over the desert, whatever, wherever lions live. I don't know. Um, but he can't do any of that. And so he's saying, look, you're better off, even as a dead dog, or even as a live dog, you still have a chance to make the most of life. It's essentially what he's saying. You still have a chance. If there is breath in your lungs, if you're alive, there is a purpose for you, and you have a chance to make the most of this life. Now, now then, what is, what is the outcome? Now, eventually, we get to verse 9. It's, it's almost as if what he's doing here, as he's about to say this in verse 9, is similar to what he did back in chapter 6, verse 12. If you remember, we related this to an onion um, several weeks ago. Layer one of this onion was what, what is good, essentially, or what does man gain by all of the work with which he toils under the sun? And he essentially said nothing, right? And then as in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, okay, well, if you can't really gain anything, what is good for us in this life we've been given? That's the second sort of layer of this onion being peeled back. And, and he's sort of circling back to that in verse 9. This is his advice to us. 
He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that has been given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, I think this is sort of fascinating. Because again, remember, all the way back in chapter 2, what did we see in Solomon? What we saw was somebody who tried to lay hold of folly according to chapter 2. We saw somebody gain for himself all sorts of concubines and all sorts of wives. We saw in 1 Kings chapter 11 that Solomon actually had 300 concubines, 700 wives. He had 1,000 women. And now it's really interesting as he's considering, okay, how then should I live knowing that this life is going to come to an end? Isn't it fascinating that he takes a singular approach toward love your wife? It's as if he's realized all of those things that I pursued, all of that pleasure that I pursued, all the way back in chapter 2, verse 17, as he's, as he's gained all that he could gain and as he's had as many women as he can handle, what he says, he actually can't handle it. He says, I hated my life. He says, I hated my life. Isn't that heartbreaking? And so now here, contemplating death, what is good? What should I do, God? What should I do? He says, love your wife. And again, I think that's a really good reminder for those of us who are in marriages. All right? That, that really maybe the best thing for us is that if we'll stay within the boundaries of biblical relationship and marriage, we'll actually find that we're more satisfied. Right? Well, actually, our joy will actually be enhanced. And again, we talked about this back in chapter 2. We actually rob ourselves of joy. We rob ourselves of pleasure when we start looking at people who we shouldn't be looking at or looking at things that we shouldn't be looking at. We actually rob our enjoyment out of our spouse. And again, we talked about that at length several weeks ago. You can go back into the archive and look at that message if you would like to. But there's a really insignificant word uh, here that I think is helpful for those of us who aren't in, aren't in marriage. Because I think sometimes if we read a text like this, we can say, oh, great, well, in order to make the most out of this life, then I have to be married. And I think sometimes that's how it's been taught throughout the history of the church, is that marriage is the pinnacle, and if you don't achieve the pinnacle of marriage, then somehow you're a failure, and somehow you're missing out on life. And yet the word he used here is, is the wife, your portion in life. And that word portion, it, it has a couple of connotations, a couple of meanings. Portion is sort of like, this is your lot, like, this is, this is where you are, so, so really enjoy that, pursue that. Portion also has the connotation, when you look up into the original language, of treasure, right, and of reward. If you actually look at different transla translations, it uses the, war, the word reward. And so, those of us who aren't married, and maybe that's because you're not old enough yet, Maybe that's because you just haven't found the right person yet. Maybe you're not married right now because you have been sinned against. And the pain of that is really deep. Maybe you're not married right now because you have sinned against. And that pain is really deep. And so what then do you do with this counsel and this wisdom? Well, I want to direct us to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If I can find it. We'll get to it eventually. The Apostle Paul, talking about relationships, he says this in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. 
We know that the Apostle Paul was single. And so all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul, this is his portion in a sense. This is his lot. This is his reward. He says, I wish that you were single as I am. And in our culture, in our context, that has really put marriage on a pedestal. And marriage is great, by the way. There's no better representation of Jesus and the church and the church than Jesus than marriage. And yet, there is blessing not in marriage. He says this as we continue on in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxiousness, anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So, wherever you are, happiness comes when we focus on God's design for relationships in both marriage and singleness. I think, well, actually, if we focus on where we are and say, God, help me in this season, it's not to say if you're single, you shouldn't be married, but it's to say, how can you give me contentedness and peace in this season, and I can focus on you? So he says all of that, and I think, again, I think that's important for us to see, right? Now, he continues on in these thoughts. Again, what is good? As we contemplate death is in all of our future, what is good? How should we then live? Verse 10, continuing on, he says this. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, all of a sudden, the guy who's been focused under the sun seems to peak above the sun in this mention of Sheol. Sheol is, is a difficult concept for us to understand in a New Testament, New Testament age because Sheol is really the realm of the dead. In the Old Testament view, Sheol is when you die, you go into Sheol. It's this gloomy, dark, underworld sort of place. And there's many different passages that talk about it. I'm not going to go into depth of those passages. But essentially what he's saying is, look, you're going to go to Sheol. And so his advice to us is, do it with your might. And so I want to sort of push against this here a little bit because it's as if his motivation, church, motivation is really important. What is it that motivates us? It's as if his motivation to make the most of your life, to be, to be the live dog, is to consider that eventually you're going to Sheol, which is, has this dark negative connotation. It's as if he's trying to motivate us out of fear. And that may be true. Because, again, in an Old Testament view, they hadn't yet received the full counsel of Scripture. It's not to say he's wrong. It's just to say in a New Testament context, we have had more Scripture revealed to us. We have had more words spoken to us. We've received the final revelation in Christ. And so how then, in a New Testament age, in a New Testament context, stick with me here, how then are we not motivated by fear but by love? Well, that's where we need to understand what are the promises for us in Christ when we die. Look at all over in Scripture. You see what Jesus says to the thief on the cross next to him. Today, I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. 
What we see is the Apostle Paul talking about, it's better for me to depart and to be with the Lord, but for your sake, I'm going to stay here. And it's not Paul uh, trying to promote suicide. It's the Apostle Paul saying, I'm really excited for when I get to be with Jesus. Because the moment this life ends, then I am with Jesus. The New Testament seems abundantly clear that when this life comes to end, through faith in Christ, we're either, either with Jesus, or if we don't have faith in Christ, we're separated from Jesus. And so, all of that being said, how do we live lives motivated not by fear of Sheol, but by drive and passion toward what Christ has called us to? I love the phrase that he uses. He says, do it with all your might. Whatever your hands lay hold to do, do it with all of your might. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now this week as I was prepping this and, and studying and, and just wrestling with these texts, which golly, it's been a really fun series, but a really just like, what in the world do we do with this you know, each and every week? But I started thinking about how we use our time. It says, do whatever you do with all your might. Apostle Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And I started thinking about our work lives. Uh, Statistically speaking, I did a little digging here, 37% of U.S. employees admit um, to watching Netflix at work. It's honest. Okay, cool. That's good. Um, Somewhere around uh, 20% say, yeah, we, we, we waste at least 30 minutes a day at work. Yeah, probably a little bit, you know. Do you count lunch in that? You know, I don't know. Um, and so what also is insane is, is certain people, um, actually 89% waste 30 minutes. Almost 20%, excuse me, 20% say they waste almost two hours in an eight-hour workday. And they admitted to it, right? That's amazing. It's probably more. So 20% of people are saying, I waste in an eight-hour shift over two hours of work a day. And yet... What the author of Ecclesiastes says is do everything with your might. And what the Apostle Paul says is whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And so my question is, is wasting time at work to the glory of God? We'll just let the Holy Spirit do with that what he will. Now, what about outside of work? And this one really wrecked me. I came home to Maddie and I was like, that's it. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm wasted. I did some more research here. At home, on average, these are averages, okay? On average... Don't pull up the graphic quite yet, all right? On average, Americans spend 3.25 hours on their phones each day, average. You might hear that and say, that's crazy. You might hear that and be like, it's nothing, all right? Depends where you are. It's an average, okay? Now, on average, U.S. Americans spend about three hours watching TV per day. Interesting, Okay. So maybe we pull this up, right? So imagine there's a pie. So phone is two and a half hours, or 3.25 hours, average. TV, another three hours. Then, on average, Americans work about eight hours a day, unless they're spending two hours on their phone. (laughs) But eight hours a day, okay, work. Again, just averages. Bear with me. Then, on average, people sleep about seven hours a day. Now, I'm not a mathematician, and I will readily admit that I'm not very good at math, but I think this adds up to somewhere between 2.7 hours of available free time in your day. Well, shoot. Two and a half. That math isn't right. Anyway, it should be 2.75. Told you I wasn't a mathematician. I admitted it straight up. Okay? So all of a sudden, if he's saying, look, do this with all of your might... 
And what we're doing is staring at screens mindlessly for six to seven hours a day, and we've been given 24 hours in a day. My question is, are we doing it with all of our might? If you take just the phone use, 3.25 hours, over a seven-day period, again, I'm not great at math, but that's about 22 hours or something like that of a week, actively staring at this little thing. 22 hours. Take that over the course of a year. If that's your average, you're going to spend about seven weeks of your year staring at your phone. Add TV into it, all of a sudden, 14 out of your 52 weeks are gone. Now, imagine for a moment, we just cut this in half, right? So instead of spending 3.25 hours, we, we just cut it in half. We cut our TV in half. Now, all of a sudden, we go from two and a half available hours or 2.75 available hours to 5.8 available hours because we do need to work. We do need to sleep. We do need to do certain things. But when you jam your lawn care and your kids and trying to have friends, which, I mean, who has time for that? And, and trying to, you know, go on a date with your spouse and then trying to, to do all of the good works that Christ has set out before you, all of a sudden you're out of time. And so when I was looking at these statistics, I was saying, wake up, Paul. You're wasting your life. You're wasting your time. You're wasting what God has put you on this earth to do to bring glory to him. Wake up. That's a whole lot better. But imagine if we cut this out totally, and I don't have a slide for this. Oh, maybe I do. We cut it in half again. All of a sudden, we've got another. I'm just saying, what could you do with this time? How much more of an engaged parent would you be? How much more of an engaged spouse would you be? How much more time when somebody calls and says, I just had surgery or, or um, you know, somebody I know just died or, uh, hey, you know, uh, Voice of Hope Pregnancy Center needs some help or, you know, whatever it may be, would you say instead of, I'm too busy, I can't, you say, no, I have the bandwidth for that. America is so busy, but we waste so much time. We waste so much time. And again, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do with that what he will. Ephesians 2.10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, I am terrified that we have good works set before us. Things that God wants us to do. Things that God has given us the privilege and the opportunity to do while we're still live dogs. To be a part of his work and to be a part of his kingdom. But we're so distracted and we're so mindless that we're missing it. We're missing it. And so what would it look like if we, we said, no, wake up. Take it a whole way. Jesus, what are you doing around me? What are you doing in me? What are the good works that you have set before me to do? What's amazing, church, is when God saved you, he didn't just save you to put you on the bench. He saved you to say, no, join in my activity. When Jesus was ascending into heaven, what did he not say? All right, guys, I'm going into heaven. I'm going to control everything like a puppet master from upstairs. Y'all just chill. No, he said, go and make disciples. Go. There's action. There's activity. There's, there's things for us to do. And when we do those things, they will satisfy our souls. We will find joy. We will find satisfaction. We will find meaning in this life because we're living for what God has called us to do.
Now, maybe Holy Spirit's really just cutting in us this morning, and you're like, that's it, I'm getting a dumb phone. Seriously, whatever it takes, get a dumb phone. I'm, I'm very much considering it because sometimes I just can't help myself. I find myself searching like trailers on Facebook Marketplace for an hour. Like, what am I doing? Just got one, it's awesome. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. So really, though, what, what, then do we, what then do we do about this? All right, what, what, do we, what do we do? Well, I want to just take us to one more place. Hebrews chapter 12. I feel like we go here a lot, but man, it's good, huh? Hebrews chapter 12, it's just it's so good. He says this in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and, and just before this, he's talked about really what we call the hall of faith. All of these people who lived such great examples of faith. And you know what's really great? When you read through the hall of faith, what you see is like, they're being honored here, but these people were broken. These people were messed up. These people sinned. These people failed. And yet the grace of God sustained them because they kept pushing forward and saying, God, forgive me. I'm a screw-up. I need you. Make me into a different person. And God was consistently working through them. And so he gives us these examples of all of these people who just kept persevering in faith, even through their sin. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what's really fascinating? As I read that, who endured the cross, despising the shame, what I see is really an all-in God. Don't you? I see an all-in God. I see a God who, who is looking down and, and saying, look, he... The shame that Jesus had to endure by just being human. It's God. The shame he had to endure to go to the cross. Jesus was an all in. He's all in. He didn't say, oh, let's just send an angel down for me in my place. No, no, no. He came himself. He didn't say, let's send somebody else to the cross and I'll just sort of somehow make my sin be on that other guy so I can step out of here. No, he's an all in. He's the one who had who had the spear pierce him, who had the whip taking the skin off of his back, who had the nails through his hands and his feet. He's an all-in God. And so what I think, church, is that if we have an all-in God, he's also calling us to be all-in Christians. And if we want to be all-in really for God and what God is doing, there might be some things that we need to cut out. If we want to be all-in and follow the example of God, my, my question is, what is it that we need to cut out? And I love here what he says in Hebrews. He says this, lay aside every weight and sin. There's a distinction, isn't there, between weight and sin. It seems as though there's two things. Some of us have a plow hitched to us. I remember in, in Little League, my, I remember my Little League coach, if I hit, you know, uh, a hit that was good every once in a while, you know, once a season, and I'd be, you know, turning first, and my coach would scream at me, unhitch the plow! Tells you how fast and athletic I was. Anyway, and so sometimes I think in this, this walk of faith, we're just dragging this plow behind us called distraction. Busy. I had too much going on. Man, life is hectic. Life is hard. Yeah, I spend three hours on my phone a day, but life is busy. I think we need to unhitch the things that are, that are keeping us and preventing us from living full lives and from being all in people. 
What is the weight that's weighing you down? Maybe for you, it's like you, 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 you're just walking in shame. Maybe that's your weight. And you're like, I can't step into God activity with all of the shame and with who I am as a, in, in the past. You're redefined through Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. You're a new person in Christ. And maybe for some others of us, we're not an all-in Christian because we're, we're clinging to sin. And we're holding on so tightly to sin, we can't bear to let it go because we've made it part of who we are. We've made it what we enjoy most in the world. And, and I think what the scripture is saying is that when we fix our eyes on Jesus and who Jesus is, what that will do is not only will he allow us to, to unhitch the plow, but he'll allow us to lay aside the sins. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we're, we're confronted with the beauty of Christ and the horror of the crucifixion. And when we see those two things in a healthy, biblical, gospel-centered way, when we understand we are wicked and sinful and flawed, and at the same time when we see Jesus on the cross, the author and the perfecter of our faith, what that does is it says, God, help me no longer pursue and love the things Jesus you deemed serious enough to go and get crucified for. And we need to come to terms with that sometimes. That sin is so serious, sin is so deadly, sin is so wicked, sin is so sinister that God himself deemed it serious enough to be crucified to save us from. And we go and trifle with it. We pursue it. We cultivate it. We love it. And so where I want to challenge us this morning is a healthy gospel-centered view and a reflection what do I need to lay aside? What weight is preventing me from being an all-in Christian? What sin do I need to place upon Jesus? Because he's willing, he's accessible, he's saying, put it on me. I've already paid for it. So I want to help you live a meaningful life. So as we go into prayer time, I want to give us time to reflect on that. I'm going to let us pray first in silence. So would you bow your heads? And I want you to ask Ask God, God, what is the weight for me? What is the thing that I'm, that I'm letting just hold me back from being all in? God, you've set before me good works to do. Holy Spirit, I ask in this moment that you would reveal those to us. You can. I ask that you would. God, I'm asking myself, what would it look like? How much better of a father would I be if I didn't have this little three-by-six thing in front of my face all the time? How much better of a husband would I be? How much better of a pastor would I be? How much more of your glory would I see? Because my eyes are open. I'm not fixed on something else. Reveal it to us by the power of your spirit, Father. Secondly, by the power of your spirit, God, we ask that you would reveal sin in our hearts in such a way that we would see it for its wickedness and its ugliness and its deadliness and we would, we would hold it. We would carry it. Say, here you go, Jesus. 
Jesus up on the cross says, I'll take it, put it on my back. And we have this dialogue, I think, sometimes in our head that says, but it's too ugly. It's, it's mine. Jesus says, I know, but I'm making it mine for you. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So would you lay your sin upon Jesus? Say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied as we sang this morning. For anybody here who doesn't yet know Jesus and you know, you're, maybe you're asking the question, what's the point of my life? Why am I here? What's the purpose of my life? Purpose begins through faith in Jesus. Life is meaning with, meaningless without Jesus. So I want to encourage you to submit your life to him, to surrender to him. So here I am. Here I am. God, we love you. We need you this morning. Continue to glorify yourself in our midst. Help us lay aside the weights. Help us give to you our sins. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.